Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover endometrial precancerous lesions. Endometrial hyperplasia is of clinical significance because it is often a precursor lesion to adenocarcinoma of the endometrium, making the distinction between hyperplasia and true precancerous lesions or true neoplasia has significant clinical effect because their differing cancer risks must be matched with an appropriate intervention to avoid undertreatment or overtreatment. Pathological diagnosis of premalignant lesions should use criteria and terminology that clearly distinguish between between clinical pathological entities that are managed differently. Sensitive and accurate diagnosis of true pre-malignant endometrial lesions can reduce the likelihood of developing invasive endometrial cancer. Now, based on available data and expert opinion, the ACOG and the Society of Gynecology Oncology made several recommendations. In this podcast, we will cover these recommendations, which is a review of committee opinion number 631. The precursor lesion of type 1 endometrioid adenocarcinoma is endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia, or EIN. Estrogenic stimulation of the endometrium, unopposed by progestin, causes proliferative glandular epithelial changes. This finding, due to prolonged hormonal exposure, is biologically distinct from true precancerous lesions and true neoplasia making the distinction between hyperplasia and true precancerous lesions or true neoplasia has significant clinical effect because their differing cancer risks must be matched with an appropriate treatment to avoid undertreatment or overtreatment. OBGYN providers should be aware of two nomenclature schemes that are used to classify intraepithelial pathology. That's the endometrial intraepithelial neoplasm scheme and the WHO 1994 scheme. Pathological diagnosis of premalignant lesions should use criteria and terminology that clearly distinguish between clinical pathological entities because they're managed differently. So, according to the college, at present, the endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia scheme is tailored most closely to this objective, incorporating modified pathological criteria based upon evidence that has become available since the original creation of the WHO 1994 scheme. Okay, because we said a lot there, let's go over that in a different way. There are currently two systems of endometrial precancer nomenclature in common use, the WHO-1994 scheme and the endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia designation. This was developed by the International Endometrial Collaborative Group. The WHO-1994 scheme classifies histology based on glandular complexity and nuclear atypia, and it's usually made of four categories, simple hyperplasia, complex hyperplasia, simple hyperplasia with atypia, and complex hyperplasia with atypia. These categories are descriptive in nature and interpretation is subjective, so studies indicate poor reproducibility of the individual case classifications. Moreover, the individual categories do not suggest specific management algorithms. This older scheme is the one most commonly used by pathologists, but ACOG recommends transitioning to the endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia nomenclature because it would provide greater benefit to clinical management. 
In the endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia scheme, endometrial precancer is actually termed EIN, or endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia. Now, there's actually three disease categories in this EIN scheme. The first is for benign tissue changes, like benign endometrial hyperplasia. The second is pre-malignant changes, called endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia, which we've just discussed. That's also called EIN. And the third classification is truly malignant changes. That represents endometrial adenocarcinoma, endometrioid type, that's well differentiated. Now, according to the college, by applying the endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia scheme to routinely obtained endometrial tissue samples, pathologists present the clinician with a disease-specific classification that can help inform treatment decisions. Here's what the breakdown looks like according to the college. Benign endometrial hyperplasia has a topography that's diffuse, and the functional category is from prolonged estrogen effect. The treatment for this is hormonal therapy if they're symptomatic. The next classification is true precancerous lesions. Again, that's called EIN, and the topography of the pathology is focal progressing to diffuse. This is a true precancerous change. The treatment is hormonal therapy or surgery, and we'll get into that in just a minute. The third classification is, of course, the cancerous one, which is endometrial adenocarcinoma, endometrioid type, well differentiated. This has focal progressing to diffuse topography. And the functional category, again, is malignant. The treatment for this is surgery, which is based on stage. Sensitive and specific detection of endometrial precancer and exclusion of coexisting carcinoma are prerequisites for management of patients with premalignant endometrial lesions. Excluding concurrent carcinoma by endometrial suction curette is especially problematic because about 40% of patients who receive a premalignant endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia diagnosis by endometrial suction curette receive a carcinoma diagnosis by using a hysterectomy. Again, suction diagnosis of EIN can miss 40% of patients who will actually be upgraded in terms of their diagnosis to true carcinoma once a hysterectomy is performed. The accuracy of DNC compared with endometrial suction in diagnosing precancer and excluding concurrent carcinoma is actually unclear. Now, here's the data and the clinical pearl from the college. Both have sampling limitations. Approximately 60% of DNC specimens sample less than one half of the uterine cavity. The method of sampling is less important if management includes definitive treatment with a hysterectomy, which eliminates the risk of failure to diagnose an endometrial cancer. DNC and endometrial suction sampling devices have been reported to yield equal rates of cancer detection in patients with abnormal uterine bleeding. A single institution retrospective series found that DNC used to diagnose endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia was less likely to miss cancer than the use of endometrial suction curette. Now, mass lesions that impinge upon the uterine cavity may deflect flexible endometrial suction curette devices. This can prevent adequate assessment of the endometrial cavity. All right, so according to the college, hysteroscopy with directed biopsies is more sensitive than blind procedures like DNC and suction in the diagnosis of uterine lesions. Regarding tissue sampling, hysteroscopy, while not required, is recommended by the college with directed DNC to include any discrete lesions as well as the background endometrium. 
This will provide the best opportunity to confirm the diagnosis of a true pre-malignant endometrial lesion and exclude an associated endometrial carcinoma. All right, next, let's talk about the diagnosis or suspicion of endometrial cancer among women with postmenopausal bleeding. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Transvaginal ultrasound has excellent negative predictive value for endometrial cancer in women with postmenopausal bleeding. When transvaginal ultrasound is performed for patients with postmenopausal bleeding and an endometrial thickness of 4 millimeters or less, endometrial sampling is not required because of the low risk of uterine malignancy in this case. Remember, that's assuming that a good endometrial stripe can be seen. An endometrial thickness greater than 4 millimeters in a patient with postmenopausal bleeding should trigger alternative additional evaluations, whether that's sonohysterography, office hysteroscopy, or an endometrial biopsy. The significance of an endometrial thickness greater than 4 millimeters in an asymptomatic postmenopausal patient has yet not been established, and this finding need not routinely trigger evaluation. Remember that the most common bleeding with a true precancerous lesion or endometrial cancer is typically abnormal uterine bleeding. The utility of ultrasonographic depiction of an endometrial thickness for ruling out malignancy is limited to the postmenopausal patient who has bleeding. Again, that's your clinical pearl. The utility for ultrasonographic depiction of the endometrial thickness for ruling out malignancy is limited to the postmenopausal patient who has bleeding. Okay, now regarding management of endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia, remember that the primary objectives in a patient in whom EIN has been newly diagnosed are the following. The first is ruling out a concurrent adenocarcinoma. Next, it's designing a treatment plan that can accommodate delayed discovery of an occult carcinoma. And then third, preventing the progression of endometrial cancer. Now, total hysterectomy is an effective means of treating a biopsy diagnosis of EIN, but of course, that would limit a woman's fertility. Now, when clinically appropriate, total hysterectomy for endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia does provide definitive assessment of a possible concurrent carcinoma and effectively treats all premalignant lesions. Current surgical options include abdominal, vaginal, and minimally invasive hysterectomy techniques. These methods are acceptable to perform a hysterectomy with or without bilateral sepingo-oophorectomy in patients with a biopsy diagnosis of EIN, supracervical hysterectomy, morcellation, and endometrial ablation are unacceptable for treatment of endometrial intraepithelial Now, because of concerns about underlying cancer, a supracervical hysterectomy should not be performed. Removal of the cervix and the lower uterine segment, along with the uterine corpus, actually permits staging of any incidentally discovered cancer and reduces the risk of leaving behind residual tissue. 
at time of surgery, the scope of the operation may be changed based on intra-op assessment and pathological review. Evaluation should include opening up the specimen to assess for gross evidence of tumor invasion. Now, invasive cancer is suspected. The gynecologist and the pathologist should exercise judgment in deciding if frozen section analysis is indicated, and the surgeon needs to be aware that there's a small risk of discordance between frozen and final pathological interpretations, although it can be quite small. If a gynecological oncologist is not available, one reasonable strategy is to await final pathological assessment of the uterus in order to better select patients who would benefit from comprehensive surgical staging. Now, comprehensive surgical staging with pelvic and periaortic lymph node dissection at the time of hysterectomy just for EIN would result in overtreatment and increased surgical risk for the vast majority of patients. But remember that the risk of a concurrent high-grade uterine cancer, that's high-grade or deeply invasive, in women with a biopsy diagnosis of EIN is about 10%. Pelvic and paraaortic lymph node dissection as a routine part of treatment for endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia would result in a large majority of patients being subjected unnecessarily to the risks associated with comprehensive surgical staging. Total hysterectomy with or without oophorectomy along with peritoneal washings may be the most appropriate surgical treatment for EIN with additional staging involving a gynecologist-oncologist. All right, when we come back, let's cover non-surgical management options for EIN. Non-surgical management is acceptable for patients who desire future fertility or patients with sufficient medical comorbidities that precludes surgical management. Several studies have evaluated the use of hormonal treatments to induce regression of hyperplasia. The use of progestins is, of course, of great interest and has an acceptable toxicity profile. Treatment with progestins may be an option for a patient who wants to retain fertility. Any patient with a hyperplastic or precancerous lesion who desires uterine retention and the most elderly patients with medical comorbidities who carry a diagnosis of endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia. Remember that progesterone counterbalances the mitogenic effects of estrogens and induces secretory differentiation. Several regimens have been published in the literature to address EIN, and that includes medroxyprogesterone acetate or Provera 10 to 20 milligrams per day or cyclically 12 to 14 days per month. Additionally, Depo-Provera has been used at 150 milligrams IM every three months. Micronized vaginal progesterone at 100 to 200 milligrams per day or psychically for 12 to 14 days per month have also been published for a duration of three months' time. Megase, which is magestral acetate, anywhere from 40 milligrams up to 200 milligrams per day has also been published. Lastly, the levonorgestrel IUS or Mirena and those derivatives have been used at a dose of 52 milligrams as a steroid reservoir in the cavity for the five years duration. Now, here's an important thing to note that that has only been done with the higher dose 52 milligrams Mirena counterpart and not the lower dose options of Skyla or Kylina. 
However, according to the college, remember that there are still several unresolved issues regarding hormonal treatment of endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia. The optimal treatment dose and duration has not been determined, nor has it been determined whether treatment should be cyclic or continuous. The appropriate length of follow-up after treatment also has not been clearly defined. Appropriate measures of the clinical and histological response to progestin treatment are also lacking. Full examination of the endometrium is required to measure regression, persistence, or progression of endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia. Examination of the entire uterus after hysterectomy is considered ideal, but is not an option for patients who receive non-surgical management. Post-hormonal treatment surveillance after non-surgical management of EIN may include serial endometrial sampling every three to six months, but the appropriate frequency of sampling has not yet been determined. So, as we conclude this podcast, the college recommends hysterectomy as definitive treatment for the precancerous condition of endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia, but recognizes that medical management, although having its limitations, has a role in patients who desire fertility or who are poor surgical candidates. The duration of this medical therapy is not clearly established, with some advocating three to six months of treatment and others recommending a minimum of 12 months to 24 months knowing that once sloughing of the target lesion occurs, it may be followed by recurrence if treatment is not continued indefinitely. Okay, that wraps up our session covering endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia, a true precancerous condition of endometrial adenocarcinoma. The data for this podcast was taken from the combined bulletin from the Society of Gynecological Oncology and the American College of OBGYN, which is Committee Opinion Number 631.